This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for March 10th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, today I want to call on you in your roles as infectious disease physicians. Now that the number of coronavirus cases is increasing in the United States, clinicians are going to start seeing patients. I'd like to offer a couple of clinical scenarios and get an idea of what you would advise. Scenario one, a physician in the suburbs of New York City calls to ask you for advice. His patient's a 35-year-old, previously healthy man who's been feeling ill. He's got a cough, a low-grade fever. He has no known ill contacts, but he's been working as a banquet waiter, and he's been at a number of large events. His cough is non-productive, and he has no shortness of breath. What should his physician recommend? Let me start off, Steve, by saying, of course, we're in a time of moving targets. These include the availability of testing, which is still rather restricted as we're speaking today, but is likely to improve over the next week or several weeks. And so that really would change the scenario. The second thing is that we don't know so much about therapies, about specific therapies. We'll get to that a little bit later. But as those data come out, it really might change this picture. But I'm going to start off with testing. As of today, tests for common viral pathogens are relatively widely available. And because of their wide availability, it seems reasonable to test for those things immediately. Because if those tests are positive, it makes it much less likely that you have to worry about COVID-19. And to the extent that therapies are available for those, such as influenza, you could give targeted treatment. If those are negative, then you could consider moving on to testing for COVID-19. Eric, I agree with you, but I think that part of what is so fast moving in this outbreak, yesterday, we would have just been thinking that New York might have infections. While today, it's become apparent that there may be significant transmission going on in New York City and the surrounding suburbs. That type of emerging data changes the evaluation of the risk profile of someone with a syndrome that is consistent with an upper respiratory infection. If this were three or four days ago, then flu is still peaking in the U.S., influenza, and that becomes epidemiologically the most likely, and as Eric, as you suggest, testing for that is a logical thing to do as it is quite common. Within the last day or two, our understanding of transmission in the greater New York City area creates a much greater concern that coronavirus may be circulating. And if we had easier access to testing, then that could be part of a rapid respiratory viral panel, which ultimately it should be. But in the short term, we need to do the tests that we have available to diagnose the conditions. So in this particular case, it does sound like an upper respiratory viral infection. And how best to rapidly assess that is a combination of the local epidemiologic risk and the testing capacity available. Um, Steve, another issue to consider in our waiter who becomes ill is the issue of social distancing. And not only do we have to think about how that individual gets assessed by the medical community, but we also have to think about that individual's environment and how do we decrease the risk of transmission in that environment. For certain types of occupations where one can do one's work virtually, then there should be plans in the offices and work environments to be able to work virtually and decrease person-to-person contact in case individuals become identified as being infected. 
This becomes much more difficult in the service industry where interpersonal contact is essential. And there we also have to think of strategies to minimize contact because not only must the individual who we think may have this infection be cared for, but we have to diminish the risk in the surrounding environment. I think another issue, Lindsay, is in these days of quarantine where we're trying to restrict disease, we really don't want patients who are potentially infected in healthcare settings where they can infect both other patients and staff members. So to the extent possible, it would be useful to be able to test people in places where there are not a lot of patients around. There are different places setting up drive-through testing. This has been very common in Korea, for example. And in Seattle, there are efforts underway to allow for home testing where patients will collect swabs at home and those will be processed centrally. So if those options are available for you as a physician, it would be great to take advantage of them for a patient such as this one. Eric, that can't be stressed enough. The last thing we want is someone with an active respiratory virus, such as coronavirus, running around town, trying to see a clinician, get testing. Are they taking the T, the bus, some kind of hired car service, and therefore potentially exposing others? And as much as we can have people self-restrict their travel, preferably to home, and then bring testing to them is something that we as a larger medical community really need to be thinking about and investing in as a better way to limit transmissible viral infections like a cold, and particularly coronavirus, given its concerning severe morbidity. Lindsay, let me ask you one follow-up question. In a patient like this where you have some suspicion of coronavirus, even if you don't have testing, what would make you suggest to his physician that the patient actually is assessed in an emergency room? That is an extremely important point. For a young, healthy person who has mild respiratory symptoms, they and the community is best served with them being at home and being monitored at home. For those who have increased risk for complications, and our understanding of who's at increased risk for complications from coronavirus is still being developed as we follow the infections and the severity of illness. But currently, those who are older, older than 60, older than 80, those who have significant comorbidities or medical conditions such as chronic heart or lung disease or on immunosuppression are the types of individuals who are at higher risk. And that just allows you to understand who's at higher risk and then what clinical signs or symptoms suggest the need for more advanced care has to do largely with progressive respiratory symptoms and evidence of respiratory dysfunction or failure. A little hard to assess at home other than symptomatically, but such portable equipment as pulse ox where one can look at the oxygen level, one could imagine that those could be tools that could help us assess who's in the process of getting sicker and then does require evaluation by a clinician or in the hospital and potentially hospital admission. But that becomes a very important issue of how do we enable our patients to be home quarantined safely and at what point are there warning features that they're getting more severely ill and the respiratory status and deterioration in that is the critical element to monitor. And is that true not only for older patients, but also for the patient in this scenario who's young and healthy? There's no COVID-19 test available for this patient today, but should his clinician be following up so that if his condition deteriorates and a test is available in a few days, he can have that test? 
So, Steve, I think you raised two points for me to clarify. One is who's at risk for getting sicker so you pay even closer attention to them and who is getting sicker, which can be anyone. And if someone is getting sicker, then more advanced care may be necessary. And unfortunately, we've all heard about young, otherwise healthy individuals requiring ventilator support. So I think we shouldn't underestimate the potential of this hypothetical patient, a 35-year-old healthy individual, potentially progressing. The issue of obtaining the test to make the diagnosis is something we should be doing in general. Then the question is, who's at risk for progressing, and how do we manage them if they have the signs of progression? So let's go on to scenario two. A physician calls you to ask for advice about a 75-year-old man who was admitted to the hospital two days ago with a cough after he returned home from a cruise. He has a history of hypertension, diabetes, chronic renal insufficiency. He hasn't had a fever, but despite the fact that he's had few symptoms aside from this cough, he's had relative hypoxemia with a room air oxygen saturation of 90%. It was 99% when it was checked by his primary care physician last month. Screening tests for other respiratory pathogens are negative, but today tests are reporting presumptively positive for the virus that causes COVID-19. So how should this patient be managed? So let me start with just some nomenclature here. The testing is described as presumptively positive because the test was performed in, uh, as of today, a public health lab probably and is awaiting confirmation generally at the CDC. That was an important distinction once upon a time. Nowadays, I think we've moved beyond that. When people have a high risk of disease, like someone coming off of a cruise, especially one of the cruise ships where we knew that disease was being spread, Presumptively positive means positive, and there's no reason to qualify it any longer. I wrote the case, and therefore, I'm the one at fault for doing that. But I want to be clear that that is rapidly becoming an antiquated term. But Eric, I mean, the point that you're raising, which is what we know every year with influenza, is when you know influenza is highly prevalent in your locale and someone has influenza-like symptoms, they likely have influenza. Same thing here, if coronavirus is known to be circulating in the community that the individual whom you're seeing has symptoms, there is a high likelihood that contagion has occurred and they have that illness. It's simple pretest probability. So given that, we can say a couple things about this patient. First, they're asymptomatic, although their oxygen saturation is quite low. And that is very concerning because we know that the risk group for developing severe disease includes elderly patients, especially those with comorbidities. So he sits right in that risk category. We also know primarily from the cases in China, but as well the cases that came off the cruise ships, that many people who were initially not particularly sick and oftentimes asymptomatic, as is this gentleman, even though he has signs of compromise, can get much more ill and they can get ill relatively late, several days after they've presented with disease. So I think that this is a patient that one should be very concerned about. As you mentioned, Eric, the hypoxemia is one of the warning signs of grave concern, especially if the individual is not chronically hypoxemic, which presumably this individual is not. And the need for respiratory support is increasing substantially. And this is an individual who will have to be monitored very closely for the need for ventilatory support to nurse the lung through the injury that has been induced by the viral infection. 
then in addition, monitoring for other complications such as superinfection. And there have been spotty reports of bacterial superinfection, fungal superinfections that occur in these settings. A clear pattern hasn't yet emerged, but it is something that clinicians are going to have to be paying attention to or the other complications that can occur with this type of lung injury once it's induced. Should the hospital be taking any precautions at this stage with regard to this patient? Absolutely. I think infection control is an overwhelming consideration for all of these patients. And if this patient requires further support, I'll get back to that in a second, then the issues around infection control can escalate depending on what those interventions are. And those interventions are important. We do know that good supportive care can save lives here. And good supportive care means everything from the ordinary care we would give to any patient with pneumonia, including things like supplemental oxygen, all the way up to ventilation and, in some cases, the use of extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or ECMO. Uh, We do know that people have been put on ECMO and survived. So people can recover from this disease, even when it gets to very severe levels. So we should be ready to do the kinds of interventions that we can within the ability of a hospital to deliver those interventions. That will become a problem as more and more people become ill, though. I mean, along those lines, Eric, as more people become ill in the community, all of our healthcare centers and hospitals need to have thought through their emergency response plan. And we talked about this previously in terms of preparedness but to make sure that they have the proper personal protective equipment, ventilators, staffing, staffing plans if some of their staff either acquire the illness or need to be furloughed while they're under uh, quarantine, and that it is very important that all of our healthcare facilities think through carefully how they would take care of such a patient to make sure the patient gets the best care and that the environment is prepared for all of the consequences of taking care of a patient with this type of transmissible infection. Now, the next question that we come to is what about specific therapies? What should a clinician today be doing to intervene that might influence the replication of the virus and therefore the underlying cause of disease? This is, of course, what we'd all like to have right now. There are several things under consideration. Some of them are specifically antiviral. Some of them affect the host response to the virus. And some of them are available today and some of them are not. I think the problem is, and Lindsay, I'd love to get your thoughts on this too, that we just don't have data about any of these interventions yet. So it's very difficult to say whether they are good or perhaps deleterious to patients. So it's a tough time right now, but I think in the next several weeks, couple of months, we will have some data to either support or refute some of the interventions that could be possible. But for now, it's not clear that any of these are going to make a difference. I mean, Eric, as you note, a variety of interventions beyond the routine supportive care, ventilator support, IV fluids, potentially antibiotics, have been proposed. And what's critically important is to systematically study them to determine which of them provide benefit, harm, or make no difference. And as we look at many of the reports coming out of China, where they have heroically had to treat thousands and thousands of patients, medications such as corticosteroids, 
ropinavir, ritonavir, chloroquine are all things that have been discussed anecdotally. Dozens of studies have been initiated, and I think we all are anxiously awaiting their results to give us some guidance as to which of these approaches might provide some benefit. Steve, I'd like to get back to part of your original question, which was about infection control. I know in the podcast, we've talked about infection control quite a bit, and I do want to come back to it because we should never minimize that. Healthcare workers are one of the highest risk groups for this infection, and good infection control starts with recognizing that patients might put providers at risk and then thinking through ways how that particular patient's disease can be restricted. That includes all sorts of measures. There are masks and other barrier methods. There are negative pressure rooms. There's specialized equipment. There are many things you can do. But on top of that are protocols, and those protocols are maybe more important than any of the physical barriers. Simple things like hand washing, wearing protective equipment that's appropriate, taking measures when you use equipment like ventilators and such that help control infection, restricting the number of people who go into the room, simple measures like that. We are already seeing that many healthcare workers in the U.S. are being exposed to patients and therefore being taken out of the pool of caregivers. This puts a tremendous amount of stress on the system. Even hoping that none of those workers actually become ill, they can no longer provide care and it's quite difficult to staff some ICUs right now. So I think first and foremost, we need to be considering that as part of our intervention in any of these patients. Lindsay, you talked about ongoing trials. Can you say something about the challenges of conducting a randomized trial during this kind of epidemic? It is tremendously difficult to conduct any trial in the setting of overwhelming illness that requires complex support, meaning dozens to hundreds to thousands of people become severely ill over days to weeks. And the healthcare system has to absorb that, care for these individuals, many of which need ventilatory support and one may have shortages of equipment. And as Eric said, many of the healthcare workers become ill themselves. In that setting, to then conduct a trial where one looks at treatment A versus treatment B or treatment A versus standard of care is obviously incredibly challenging. But we need to be careful to not think that we are so smart that we know what works. And we have to accept that any new therapy or therapy for a new condition may not have the effect that we wish it to have. And therefore, there has to be a way to study it systematically so we can determine what works and therefore apply it more broadly. But the conditions are incredibly complicated. I mean, even with PPE, personal protective equipment, there are already shortages in this country. Where I live, if I go to CVS or Walgreens, I can no longer find masks or Purell. And that just is a sign that some of the protective equipment that we take for granted may be in short supply and short supply in healthcare settings as well, and that that further increases the challenges. But just because it's challenging doesn't mean we shouldn't figure out how to do it, because the only way to advance knowledge and allow us to know what the right treatments are that benefit and don't hurt our patients is to study them in a systematic way to understand that. And so it is incredibly difficult, but incredibly important to do. While we're recording this today, the governor of Massachusetts has announced an emergency for our state. So let me close the way that I would close to any clinician asking for advice, which is please be careful out there. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.